Do you know who the best player in the game is? Me, Mars Blackman. And I'm way above the rim, demonstrating some serious hang time. Very serious. Do you know how I get up for my game? Do you know, do you know, do you know? That's right, Air Jordan, Air Jordan, Air Jordan. Mike, what's up? Oh, m money, money, why you wanna do that to me? Why you leave me hanging? Come on, I got it. Oh, Mike, man, that's cold, man. So what do people think you do? There's a quote by the famous psychologist Carl Jung that goes, You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. And there are other just as famous variations of this. Maya Angelou said, People will judge you by your actions, not by your intentions. Or the quote from the German romantic writer, Wait a minute, hold on, German romantic writer? Isn't that an oxymoron? Oh, I kid, I kid. Anyway, the German writer Jean Paul who wrote that you prove your worth with your actions, not with your words. So yeah, it would seem that our actions are what define us, not what we say we're going to do. And that makes sense, logically. But interestingly, as is all things within the corporation, there can be some weird, twistic logic that goes on. In many cases, as a good friend of mine said to me just the other day, in companies, and especially in the marketing department, it's not what you do, it's what people think you do. And this is important. Many times, especially in big companies, but in smaller companies too, we can be putting our heads down with our team, cranking away at work, producing wonderful things continuously day after day, and then one day in the weirdest twist of fate, management, or the sales team, or that IT team, or the PR department, is suddenly surprised by our work's existence at all. In some cases, they had some vague notion of what it is we and our team do, but they never really thought twice about it until somehow it encroached on what they did. Or they had no idea you were working on that huge content project until it launched, and then suddenly, mysteriously, it somehow conflicts or competes with what they're doing. Or, and this is a real example by the way, you're brought in to create an entire team and strategy to create content marketing, and over four years and increasing demands from sales, marketing, and PR, your team grows from 2 to 4 to 10 to 15. And you go to make your yearly budget request and the CMO says, why do you have 15 people on your team and what is it you really do with all those people? And you realize your role, your job in the company, it's not what you do. It's what people think you do. In so many ways, we are so siloed that we're not actually judged or esteemed by our actions. We're judged or esteemed by what we tell everyone our actions will be. Today, ironically, because of the democratization of content and communication and the 400 emails, 25 memos, 16 new messages on the company intranet and the chatterboard, it's up to us to do content marketing to our internal teams as well. It's easy to intellectually recognize that we've got to keep people up to date about our strategy and our team and what we're doing, but even more important is to get their attention and convince them that our efforts are important. It's not just telling these teams what you're doing, it's showing them in a way that convinces them, inspires them, engages them, informs them, and ultimately changes their behavior. That's content marketing. And that's the theme of our show today. Not what you do, it's what people think you do. And we have to make sure that what people think we do is actually just this side of Rockstar. As we work the marketing, let's not forget to market the work. And now it's time for me to get on with this awesome show that Joe and I have been doing for 172 episodes. That's 3.3 years of this old marketing goodness. And we know that you know that we know you know, and we do know 
You ready to know more? Well, then let's roll. For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 172 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Sunday, February 26th, 2017. And with me, as always, is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, and the guy who knows that I know that he knows that I know he knows all the wonderfulness of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? What the heck does that mean? Well, you know, now you haven't heard the introduction yet. No, but it's about it's about knowing what you know, and how do I know that you know what I know? So, oh, it's, well, that that's that's it's all about internal marketing. To... It's it's all about internal marketing. So it's about okay, the well, idea of letting the world know that uh, you absolutely have. It's you know that you know that's the uh, uh, the Ghostbusters philosophy, right? When someone asks if you're a god, you say yes. That's the way that you operate. You have to operate that way because otherwise it's not what you do. It's what people think you do. Well, you know, people probably think that I, you know, as we uh, record this, that I've already listened to your opening, but I haven't. That's so right. we record this and then you you wrap it in a wonderful bow and send it on to me afterward and then I produce it. That's correct. So then that's correct. You know. I, and sometimes I'm inspired by the and do an intro before, and sometimes we do the intro after. It just depends on. But you mostly do it before. That's you, right. You have it pretty much done, unless we have to like do something crazy, like record a week in advance. Because, exactly, because I'm lazy or something like that. <laughs> don't want to <laughs> record while or I'm that on we're vacation. traveling, or that you're going to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers, or something like that. Something very important. Something <laughs> crucial. Um, yeah, you know it's been weird. So I went to had a great time in Florida. Obviously, it was wonderful. Sunny, spending, sunny, spending time with the sunny family. Florida, it was, yeah. it was low 80s and sunny the whole time, and then got back to Cleveland, and it was in the mid 70s in Cleveland and sunny and sunny. So on yeah. Friday, uh, it was about 75, 76 degrees, hit a record nice. high, and then 12 hours later, there were three inches of snow on my car. Oh my gosh! Holy smokers! Yep. Welcome to Cleveland. That's wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wonderful. There's we snow on the ground. Say, we used to have a saying in, in, in Texas when I was growing up is, if you don't like the weather, just wait a minute, it'll change. And that sounds just exactly like that. It's pretty much the same. Yeah. It's been a, it, and I'm, I'm not complaining about it, but February has been the mildest February that Cleveland's had in 100 years. Wow. So it really feels like September. It's like, it's time to go golfing. Let's global do this warming. thing. It's global warming. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, it's not. See, did you, did you, um, did I talk about the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing? Oh, yeah. I talked about it a couple episodes ago where he says, look, if you talk about global warming, nobody's going to want to do anything because That's global right. warming doesn't mean anything. But when you talk about there's 7 million people that have been killed in the last year from pollution, that's more right. meaningful. Exactly. So don't hit them with the global warming thing. Hit them with, hey, we've got pollution problems right now. We've got to fix that. So there you go. 
<laughs> the more you know. Ding. The more you know. We need to, yeah. Will you insert that into the production? I will. Just try. just make it a hundred times better. Uh did we have a was it a was it a fairly decent we, news week? It was a it was a fairly decent news week. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think everybody was down in Florida with you, and so there wasn't a lot of active maybe, news, but there maybe was they're preparing really for the Oscars. That You're watch they may tonight? be. I will absolutely be watching tonight. Yeah, for sure. I will be punishing myself as I do each and every year. Um, <laughs> it is the sadomasochistic. You take it so seriously. I did, you know. I mean, well, look, it's, it's, I don't take it seriously. This is one of those things where you have a drinking game for sure going on. Um, but we've watched, my wife and I and our friends have watched for forever, it seems like, since we've lived here for, you know, 30 years and we've watched the Oscars. So it's, it is a bit of a ritual and a tradition that we definitely watch. Now, I will say with the advent of, uh, you know, TiVo and, 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 and direct TV and all of that, we fast forward through a good bit of it. Right. So when the, you know, when the winner of the foreign film, um, you know, will get up and do his or her speech, we're pretty much fast forwarding through all of the thank you to, you know, Guillaume and, you know, all of the rest of the people who are responsible for such success. But Love the opening, love to see who wins, love to see the clips, love to see the little bits that they do in between. I'm looking forward to Kimmel. You know, it's it's going to be good, I think. Do you fast forward through the commercials? Because uh, yeah. well, you don't like to. You like to I watch don't. I do like watching the commercials, especially in the big event things, right? Like the Oscars, where there Super are Bowl. special commercials yeah. for it. Um, that does not necessarily go over well in my family. <laughs> They're like, you know, you're not doing marketing research. I don't know why they all of a sudden have a New York old guy accident, but, you know, but they, they're like, you don't, you can stop working for a minute, you know? So, yeah. So sometimes some commercials I'll watch and some I won't. You can never stop working. The that's mind right. is always that is, working. I, and that's my problem right now is because everywhere I go, I'm thinking about the book. Yeah, it, me like, too. You and me I write too. the book, and I'm like, yep. oh, that'll go great in this chapter and that chapter. Right. And, I'm like, and you just I, have to stop at some point. You just have to go, no, 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 it's done. It's in the can. You know. I, yeah, I'm like, I really should be listening to my kids. They're talking to me right now. <laughs> my son is actually having a conversation <laughs> right, with me, exactly. and I'm thinking about the book. So. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Let's get to All right, let's get on to the friend. news here. Our first uh, article comes to us uh, courtesy of... Ohm.co, which is uh, Ohm Malik's uh, website, I'm guessing, these days, since GigaOhm is no longer. We remember we, we, we kvetched a lot about how GigaOhm could have been a cool content marketing platform, Absolutely. but yeah. it is not. Um, and Ohm.co, uh, with our friend Ohm Malik, uh, has a headline that says, How is the New York Times really doing? Um, and the article opens up by saying, Wired Magazine recently published Keeping Up with the Times, a story about the New York Times and its slow and painful transition to a digital first publication. It's time to transform the Times digital subscriptions into the main engine of a billion-dollar business, one that could pay uh, to put reporters on the ground in 174 countries, even if, okay, when, the printing presses stop forever, says Gabriel Snyder, one of my favorite writers, by the way, says uh, Ohm, wrote in his in-depth feature, which is worth reading. And so the article goes on uh, to really sort of dissect the revenue and profitability numbers against their various areas of business. I thought this was a fascinating, you know, it, it, it took me right back, I have to say, Joe, to that 
you you said something. I'm use this all the time. You said this to me one time when we were we were in a master class before, uh, and it hadn't started yet. And and I was like, yeah, the the times and the decrease in revenue and the size of the company. And you said, no, no, no. You said you're looking at it wrong. They're not. It's not that they're that they're failing. They're just normalizing. They're getting to the new normal of what a size company of the New York Times should be. And after I saw that. It makes all this translation make so much sense to me. And these numbers really put it into a great perspective of how they're really transforming their business into a digital publication. What did you think? No, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, all those years, they basically had a monopoly. There were a small group of media companies <clears throat> that, uh, you know, they, they, they took advantage of the times. And there weren't a lot, <laughs> there were, no pun hey, intended. There, hey. there wasn't any competition for them. Uh, there were minimal places when you wanted to reach a large group of people, and, and advertisers paid dearly for that. And, uh, and the New York Times uh, benefited. And now they're sort of, uh, you know, squeezing into this new model. And I, now, I know they're doing more. I mean, they, they talk about the, the Times purchase of the wire cutter, and we've talked about this on the podcast where yeah. they've, they're really starting to drive affiliate revenues and digital subscriptions, which will be the future of the New York Times. And I think there's, there's probably going to be a time. I mean, I was really surprised. I don't know if you were with the, the significant dip in print advertising revenue. I mean, it was, it's been going down since 2011, you know, a little bit, little bit, little bit. And then it took a big, it went from 442 yeah. million to 372 million. Um, that's, uh, that's a pretty big, pretty sizable dip. Uh, and they're not making it up with digital advertising. So that's the right. core of this whole thing, and you've, you know, we've talked about this before, New York Times is not going to, uh, be the New York Times with advertising. And, and at some point, it's going to be a very small portion of their overall revenue model. So they're seeing significant growth in digital subscriptions, helped in a lot of cases through the, the Trump presidency. Yeah. Uh, fourth quarter was their biggest quarter since they started. Yeah. A digital subscription, which was amazing. I mean, you see this when you when when everyone listening to this, if you read this article, there's a great chart which shows the New York Times digital subscriptions just going up a little bit, you know, like you know, five, six percent, whatever, every quarter, and going up, 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 and then there's this huge jump in the fourth quarter, of 2016. Yeah, um, which is the the Trump effect, if you will. Yeah, and and I guess the one thing that I would like to see and wanted to get your take on is, do you think? I mean, I think I know the answer to this. Do you think the New York Times will be acquiring more companies like the wire cutter to diversify revenue so that they can sell directly to consumers? I think they – well, we'll see, right? <clears throat> I think my take on that is is I think what they're going to probably do is monitor the margins in that business, right? Because it, you know, affiliate marketing is one that is notoriously thin um, on on margins – um, especially when it scales, and so it, it's. It, I, I think it'll it'll really depend on how successful they can be um, in sort of transforming um, into more of an e-commerce focused company. I I don't see any reason why they couldn't make a huge success out of it, but I think I think to me it feels like Wirecutter is really a test um, and an experiment to see if they can actually make a go of it, um, given the talent and the and then the people they have. So. I think the jury's still out, I guess, is my, is my well, feeling on that. There's two big points that I took away here. Obviously, and the one, and, and Ohm goes through this at the end. It's his last bullet point when he talks about this major sea change is because, is because uh, consumers are willing to pay 
for content now. And he goes through Netflix, Spotify, 40 million, Apple Music, 20 million. So there's no longer that barrier. People will pay for what they deem is, is valuable content. Yeah. And so this is headed the New York Times direction. The one area that I just don't understand, and I don't know, it's probably 100 episodes ago you and I talked about it. Th- this business model that the New York Times has is right, is so perfect for the event business. It's it's oh, I so know. I can't yeah. I mean it you couldn't align it better for them to really start to build build or buy significant newsworthy events that they could generate a large I mean events I are just, fairly profitable 40 50% margin if done right. So I I, li- I literally just went on Friday night. So remember a couple of a hand dozen episodes ago we talked about the idea of the pop-up magazine. Yes. As an event. So I went to one on Friday night. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, it was fantastic. It was really, really well done. Um, And, you know, when I heard about it, so uh, a friend of mine and friend of the show, Fred Macri, hi, Fred, um, uh, invited me to go. And so I went with him down to this uh, this thing here in Los Angeles, Pop-Up Magazine. And there's a little group. They have a magazine that covers news um, and trends and those sorts of things. It's course, sort of a political, you know, sort of lifestyle magazine art. They cover a lot of things. Um, and so I went to the thing. And I, quite honestly, I didn't know what to expect. I had no expectations about this thing at all. And so I, but my, what I expected was to walk into this theater and have, you know, maybe a couple of hundred people there. There were 3,000 people in this theater. Oh my gosh. There were 3,000 people in this theater to see a 90-minute magazine. Basically, think, uh, you know, the NPR, This American Life, but live, right? With music and the sort of interstitial with multimedia, you know, so the author of the story comes out and goes... I walked down the street one day and and then immediately comes the phone call interview with the person on the line, you know, sort of doing the interview. And then they come back and she reads a little more and then there's a video and then there's – it was really well done. It was 90 minutes. It was eight stories. Um, and this kind of thing is and – they're, and they're taking off. They're now doing it in New York and D.C. and Austin and San Francisco and L.A. And it's a really a fascinating thing. And I th- just to your point, I think events line up perfectly with this kind of model. There's no reason why they couldn't have, you know, small events like that and then powerhouse events. And the other thing that that Ohm talks about is um, he says they need to find more verticals like the wire cutter that can add uh, more affiliate revenue streams. But I'm like you. I'm a little bit nervous about adding more affiliate revenue streams. I think that they can sell. I mean, (laughs) this is what you get. We're talking about this in our book like crazy. That's why it's always right. on my mind. Exactly. It doesn't. They could sell products. They can sell uh, software. They could, it. It doesn't matter. It's it. What what will their audience purchase that makes sense and aligns with their brand? There's literally hundreds of things that That's they right. could do. I'm just and wondering. that gets and and it gets to my. I mean, I'm going to talk about this when we get to rants and raves, um, a, a rave in in the New York Times article. But it's basically this the rebundling of of content services, right? So. They can become a network of content and bundle that stuff together in a really interesting way. Affiliate marketing may be one with Wirecutter, but there may be others that they sell subscriptions to, right? Or that they sell, you know, um, advertising against. You know, there there will be uh, all manner of revenue models for them to explore. Hey, I've got a book for them. I've got a yeah, really interesting I do book too. in mind I do too. for them. I do too. All righty. 
All right. Well, let's move on to our second story of the show. And this one sort of segues very nicely. There's there's an art to the way we put these things together, (laughs) Joe. It's It's like a fine recipe where we... It's amazing. All the the ingredients for a fine soup um, of news. And this one comes to us, and you'll have to tell me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Makwota.com, a interesting site that I got to explore a little bit in this story. And the headline here is, How Fake News is Making Real Publishers Look Good. The article opens up by saying, Thanks to fake news, there's a surge of interest in real news sites, which could turn the news industry around. We've written a bit about fake news lately, how Google is banning it, how Facebook is blocking it, and how it's being blamed for the results of our presidential election. But one thing I find interesting is how widespread fake news during the recent presidential election is drawing readers toward real news outlets. And just to your point, you were just talking about this in the story we were just talking about, but this article then goes on to talk about how it's really helping drive subscriptions to those brands that have some level of trust. And so maybe fake news is the savior of the subscription model, the the, the monthly subscription model. What did you take away from this? I uh, The more fake news reports I see, the more that I want to buy stock in traditional media companies. Yeah. Because this, and I didn't, I didn't necessarily see it coming, but it just seems like the more uh, that we see tweets against uh, certain media companies and negative news around them, the more it's feeding in. And there, I mean, I I saw a, uh, an interview. I, I can't remember if it was on CNN or it was on CNBC, but they were talking about CNN and they were talking about this resurgence of CNN over the past three or four months. And they're emboldened by it and they're, they're reinvesting and they're doing some amazing reporting uh, because of you know this new direction of the administration. So it's interesting that that's going that way. What, the one thing that I would talk about, though, and, and it's interesting, this uh, this article talks about Alyssa Milano, uh, which is everyone's favorite. Uh, who's the boss? <laughs> the, the, if you right, literally the stalwart of American journalism. Yes, yes. And, and she's saying, you know, she's got three million followers, and she's saying, you know, the truth is under attack. Uh, subscribe to a news outlet today, and so she's telling everyone to to pay and and do your digital subscription to whatever makes sense. Hers is the New Yorker. Uh, yeah, but what, what you know, whatever whatever your flavor of the whatever month floats is. your boat, right? Yeah, whatever. But but the and I wrote this in a. Uh, newsletter article this is probably three or four weeks ago for Content Marketing Institute where I, I took the other angle where, sure, yes, the news outlets absolutely um, have an opportunity here in this era of fake news. But I think brands, product brands more than ever before, because they have the money to invest in and telling quality stories and actually investing in, believe it or not, journalism if they wish to do so. And it's just because it's fresh on my mind. I just went through Victor Gao, who works at Aero Electronics, with you and I talk about in the book quite a bit, which is Aero Electronics, my new favorite example of all time. Yep, when it comes absolutely. to content marketing right now, where they have in the past few years purchased 51 different publications in the electronics media industry. They are the leading media company in that industry. But the one thing, and you talk about this in one of the chapters of the book, where the reason, one of the big reasons why Arrow doubled down in this is they felt that the traditional media in the electronics industry 
they weren't investing, they weren't focusing on the needs of the elect, uh, the electronic engineer as much as they felt they need that they should be. And they were worried about the growth of the industry. They were worried about new people coming into the industry and engineers educating themselves. And they said, look, we can't leave it to the media. We have to become the media. We have to we have to do this ourselves, and so they went and obviously spent a lot of money on over fifty publications, and they're really doing some amazing work, which we we detail in the book. But that's where I keep coming back to this. Yes, absolutely, there's an opportunity for media companies, but I think the real opportunity is around product brands that for them don't have to spend much money yep. to acquire uh, it- or build whichever one they want to and and become the news resource for the audience that they cover. It's such it's such an important point. Um you know and just you know what I've taken to doing um it's also my favorite new example as well and what I've taken to doing is is saying if you're in a niche business and so every B2B marketer needs to like have their ears perk up right now because if you're in a niche business where your company sells something very specific to a very specific audience, you have to be wondering and, and, and figuring out how you're going to replenish the audience that actually consumes your product. And, and in other words, if you're selling widgets to you know 50 and 60-year-old people who buy widgets – and the new people don't know about it, don't care about it, don't, you know, don't, you know, you're trying to get relevance. And the way that people understand your product or service is in some niche-oriented trade publication. Think about that publisher for a moment and think about the struggle that they're going through right now. And think about just how important is that one title to their business model. And that's yep. what that's what Aero Electronics discovered was like, you know what, Hearst they don't care about the little electronics publication that's really geeky and that covers this wonderful stuff that our audience cares so deeply about. They may very rightly kill it because they can't sell ads against it. And we can't continue to just simply buy ads against it all the time and subsidize that because that just becomes ridiculously expensive. So what do we do? Why don't we just buy the thing and that way we control everything about it? And Otherwise, what they said was, look, yeah, these things may go away and we may end up sort of relying on Bob's blog to be the sort of leading Mm -hmm. media provider of this education to our audience. And that is just an untenable situation. So by using a very small percentage of their budget and quite frankly, getting paid to do it to basically subsidize the entire education of an industry. Well, now they're making sure that that industry is going to continue to grow and going back all the way to our original marketing education, our TAM, our total addressable market, continues to increase. You know, so if you're selling welding torches or if you're selling, you know, car manufacturing uh, lugs on wheels or if you're selling, you know, things that are basically really niche items to a very niche engineer or to a very niche set of people who buy things. And that industry itself is looking at change or evolution or, you know, in any way needs to be sort of buttressed. Well, then this is an amazing way to think about that. I don't know if you saw this too, but in, um, when, when Victor and his executive team were putting together the justification for why to purchase these properties, they discovered some research called actually from you know CMI's parent company UBM called Mind of the Engineer. This is in 2014. Have you heard of this? Have you heard no, already? I have not. Okay, no, no. so he 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 found this uh, this they found this research. It's called Mind of the Engineer, 
And uh, basically, according to the research, the critical issue that engineers were concerned about was keeping their engineering knowledge up to date. Number one issue. Yep. I've got to keep my knowledge up to date. And we've seen this in multiple in- industries. It's not just for engineers. But then the research listed 18 different ways in which engineers educated themselves on a daily basis in order to keep up with that number one goal. All but two were media. From blogs to podcasts to articles to seminars. And so they looked at this and they said, if we want to be along the ride for this journey from when they're just becoming an electrical electronic engineer to when they're specking out data, when they need a data sheet, when they're at the final stages of decision, we need to, they, they made the decision that they wanted to be along for the ride the entire journey, not just a portion of that journey. And so that's why they have 51 media properties in the electronics space, because they are now along that entire journey, and they are communicating and building that community along the way. Yeah. And it is just, okay, I can't, we, I'm gushing yeah, too much it, about yeah, it's, it's, But anyways. Yeah, it's, yeah, we're fanboys for sure. The, but the, the thing I love about it is that they, and that, that they also went big here, right? They went big. They didn't just go buy one magazine and try it out. They actually said, no, if we're going to do this, let's do this, right? And, yeah, so they've, they've, they've done it. It's, uh, it's a fascinating thing. So I guess that's the point, right? Yes, absolutely, to, you know, to bring it back to the news article that we, we were discussing. Uh, big, big opportunity. I think this is going to be a, a, a renaissance of, of media, of journalism. But at the same time, we're going to see over the next 18, 24 months where you're going to see some new aero electronics type examples that are going to take this opportunity because it's there right in front of you. Well, so. funny you should mention that, Joe. Funny, oh, funny, funny you should mention that because in our the final ingredient <laughs> of our little soup that we're cooking up uh, this show, <laughs> our last story uh, of the uh, of the show comes to us courtesy of the street. Dot com, which, of course, is covering all things Wall Street acquisition, stock, uh, and business strategy. And the article uh, headline here is Magazine M&A Speculation Heats Up. The article opens up by saying, It's hardly page-turning news at this point. Print magazines are under pressure as readers flock to the Internet for instant news and entertainment updates. As a result... Publishers have been forced to cut costs, restructure operations, and explore sales. Classic magazines such as Time, Time's namesake publication, uh, Winter Media's Us Weekly, Eldridge Industries' The Hollywood Reporter, are among many of those magazines said to be in play um, for acquisition. The quote comes and says, What we are seeing in real time is the massive consolidation of the magazine industry, said Peter Kreisky, uh, founder of Kreisky Media Consultancy. And the article goes on to talk about how acquisitions of magazines will begin to consolidate in the publishing industry. And if they had called and asked Joe and I, I think we would have said, well, consolidation is one thing, but transformation into brands may be another. And I think this is just the sort of this is the icing on the cake, right? This is saying basically the opportunity is nigh. Um, we it is time for brands to step up and become. The, you know, one of the things that I was I was fascinated as you were talking, um, and you were talking about this idea of trust and and what's going on with the subscriptions and and how the fake news, etc. Yeah, is if you read the latest the ver- the 2017 version of Edelman's trust barometer, trust is at an all time low among every single category. 
And that's a bad thing, obviously, for those of us in marketing and PR and corporate communications and in media and in business and in politics and all of that. So trust is at an all-time low between those that are trying to say something and those that are actually trying to hear something. The opportunity, however, is that it's low for everybody, which means that in the past where it may have been low for brands that I don't believe what anything a company would tell me and higher for media companies and or educational institutions, well, now it's low for everybody. So the opportunity is brands can actually become one of the more trusted sources of actual content and news and education. And I think this is the this is the opportunity here when we start looking at being able to, as brands, use a little bit of our money and marketing budget to actually become the trusted resource for education, inspiration, engagement, if you will, um, to our consumers, well, we got nothing to lose because the trust is such a low point that, that you know, this is, this is the opportunity to become that trusted source. Well, while you were talking there, what, what it made me think about is we're talking about this is this a, if it's something new and revolutionary right, today? Right, exactly. And it is. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, good point. The the electronics uh, case studies they're not they're few and far between. Uh, you have Pepsi and you have Mondelez and you Coca Cola and you have um, you know smaller companies like Indium that that have gotten it and they're investing it and and into it and they're doing it. But what I what I just keep thinking about is in five years this is just going to be the way. <laughs> this is it. This is going to be the media. You and I talked about this last week in, in depth, where the market, new marketing model and the new media, mar, the new media model are identical in every way. Yeah, and so th- so this is a way. You know, the article that that goes through this says, oh, all the M and A talks about media companies buying bought by other media companies. They're not to, to, they're not mentioning what you said in the beginning, which was. What about this transformation of product brands purchasing and and being the opportunity? That's what you know. I'm reading this whole thing. I'm like, come on, are you kidding me? There's not anyone that says that the there could be a a large product company that comes out of the woods. I mean, they talked a little bit about Google uh, and and Apple in this, but but not much. So that's where I I don't know. This it's just like seems like the sweet spot from right now for the next couple of years yeah. is going to be where we're going to see a huge amount of consolidation happen and that transformation. And so that so that in 2019, 2020, uh, we're going to have to go find something else to talk about <laughs> because it's going <laughs> right. to be old news. They're going to be, yeah. oh, of course, of course. Right. But well, right when we get not. to when we get to the this old marketing example and to just exactly to your point, this is not a new idea. This is this is an this is an idea that's been around for a long time. It's just in a very weird way, the commoditization. You know, of late, I've been talking about this. You know, I, I sort of open up one of my talks with this these days. Is 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 that there has been way too much talk about you know. So it used to be the the big headline was content is king, right? Content is king. Content is king. Content is king, and. Then came the pushback on that that said, well, everything is content, and content as a general sort of meaningless word has been commoditized and democratized to the point of noise. You know, this is the content shock sort of argument. And the, the, the thing that I've been bringing up of late, I've said, listen, here's the thing. The only thing that has been democratized to the point of noise is, quite frankly, the, the, the production and distribution, distribution. of content. 
Yep. The creation of content is still just as hard as it was when Gutenberg, you know, invented the printing press. It's still hard to come up with a great idea and communicate it well. And whether that's writing, whether that's taking a beautiful picture, whether that's drawing something, whether it's whatever that the creation process is still difficult, arduous, takes talent and and time and respect for the for the form, etc. Now, what has happened is is that the democratization of the production and distribution of content has put a pressure on that creation to quite frankly do more of it thus not have that respect not take the time not understand that it takes talent and and basically put the noise out into the marketplace and so what we're discovering now is is that that pendulum is starting to switch back and that quality content that which takes time that which takes effort that which takes respect for the form is actually pretty damn valuable is you know and when we look at that value and we can become the purveyor of that quality that value that is immensely differentiating and so that's the that when we start looking at it in that way it 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 is it is the kind of thing that that transcends you know sort of you know banner ad blindness it transcends the sort of clickbaity headlines it transcends all that stuff which it, it it's it's that which drives value for what it is we're trying to do in the world and and, and it just it will always be mm-hmm. the thing that we should be doing i love that i mean you you have to talk more about that idea because i don't think a lot of people get that it's the reason why uh we've been talking about print on the show that's right because there still is a barrier to entry it's it's a little it's more it's it's costly it's more costly yeah. to do print and postage and that's why there's a is an opportunity to break through that clutter in print maybe better than other options the one thing I would say because you mentioned content shock and uh, we were reading some other articles about this um, the, the the whole idea behind content shock is it's tougher to break through all that clutter because there's so much content I would right. argue anyone that's been in the industry for more than fifteen years knows that. Well, I mean, if you look at it, the, the last five years, let's say, it is so much easier to build an audience by hundreds of times than it was 20, 25 years ago. I mean, Absolutely, you, you yes. can, any, I mean, look at the amount of new media companies and individuals that are breaking through and doing amazing things every day. So every time I see this thing about, oh, it's so hard to break through, it's a bunch of malarkey, as my grandpa yes. would say. <laughs> it's there's yes, no right. way you can yes does it take some original thinking to your point is it work to do that do you have to consistently deliver on that content promise absolutely is it harder than it was 15 years ago absolutely not it's a yes. thousand times easier it's a thousand times easier and and if you want an example of that look no further than the hydraulic press channel this is a guy who created <laughs> and with zero budget basically putting a camera in front of his hydraulic press in Norway and basically every single week on a specific day released a show that shows nothing other than a hydraulic press crushing something. And in one year went from zero to 1.5 million subscribers. And that is building an audience in a year, one year, just by creating something interesting and doing it, doing so consistently with a promise to his audience that this is what they were going to do. Every sing- there was no, this is it. This is, there's not going to be more. This is what you're going to do. We're going to crush stuff with a hydraulic press. And 
yeah, that's 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 breaking through. Content Find something right that you can do better than anyone else. Focus on that to a specific audience, and success will find you. That's it. exactly. Well, speaking of something that we do better than anybody else, we have a wonderful sponsor that we should probably talk about. We a absolutely bit. do. It's, We've got it. Really, it's really our favorite sponsor. If we're honest. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Um, we have a couple deadlines coming up, Robert, that we have to mention for Content Marketing Institute events. The first one is that our opening semester, which is our spring semester for Content Marketing Institute University, starts on March 1st. Dun, dun, and I don't know dun. if a lot of people know this, but you have uh, reformulated the entire training program this year and our new, and basically we are launching it, relaunching it, if you will. On March 1st, and the, and the uh, spring semester is only open from March 1st to March 31st, and it's only limited, it's limited to just 500 learners. So we want to get you involved. Go to contentmarketinguniversity.com to get all the information on that. It opens March 1st, ends March 31st, and because we love you, uh, we want you to save some money on this. Just use the coupon code PNR100. That's PNR100 to save $100 off your uh, subscription to the training. And we'd love to see you getting involved for that. We have some amazing testimonials from people that have just raved about uh, what you've done there, Robert. So kudos to you and Wally and, and Kim and the team that have done a fantastic job with uh, with CMI University. Couple it was other fun reminder. this year. Yep. Yeah, it was it, fun this year. It, was it really good. was. Really, really good stuff. A couple of the reminders. Uh, early bird entry uh, for the Content Marketing Awards ends dun, dun, on March dun. 10th. I don't know. So we have, uh, I think last year we had over 1,200 awards. We're going to have even more uh, award winners. Or, I'm sorry, ent- uh, award entries. And uh, we have, I believe, 91 different categories this year. So I want to make sure if you feel that you have something that uh, is rather special in the content marketing realm, we want to make sure that you uh, get some uh, notoriety for that. And we want to make sure that we tell everyone what you're doing and all the great things. And we want to learn from you as well. So please go ahead and submit your award. Go to contentmarketingawards.com and get all the information on that. Again, your early bird entries end on March 10th. So you want the best price for those submissions. You want to go ahead and do that now. And then the final reminder, and we're heating up. We're almost there. Intelligent Content Conference 2017 in Las Vegas, March 28th to 30th. It is coming up. It is the best lineup we're going to have. The most people we've ever had. The most sponsors so you can get up to date on the latest in content marketing technology. If you're serious about your content strategy, you're definitely going to want to send yourself and your team uh, to Intelligent Content Conference. Just go to intelligentcontentconference.com for all the information. I will be there. Robert will be there. Uh, you'll be doing more work than I will. I'll be, I'll be doing my normal, you know, welcoming people and smiling at them. And you'll actually be working and doing things like that. I'll do so. some work. I'll do some work. <laughs> I, I will. I promise to do some. That's that's uh, that's my promise to you, my friend. Is that I will do some work. I'm not saying what work I will do. Are you some looking work. forward to your uh, Q&A with Fran Leibowitz? I uh, am very much looking forward to it and in fact I I need to start doing my homework. Um and in fact I'm going to download a few of her books for my upcoming travel and and start to really understand where she's coming from and how I'll how I'll sort of structure my Q&A 
though, from what I hear, she, I'm not. I'm just going to have to say go, and she's going to start. Talking, oh yeah, exactly. You know, but um, gonna... but yeah, I'm I'm look. I'm very much looking forward to it. It should be a fascinating discussion. I'm gonna. I know I'm going to learn a lot. Well, I'm so. looking forward to that, but I'm also. I'm a little. Forward. I'm a little. You know. I mean, we're going to make sure to steer this in the right direction so that it doesn't go. You know, because I've seen a few of her interviews, and so you know, with the current politics the way they are, eh, we just need to make sure. I think that we we'll keep, be. Yeah, I think. We'll be, I think we'll, I think we'll be, be okay. Fine. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, the, yeah. I'm really looking forward to Dr. Sam Hahn's presentation for oh, the gonna be great. Washington Post. Yes. Uh, he's going to talk about what they, the data analysis that went into their political coverage. Yeah. And I'm like super – it's a great, great story. And, uh, and I'm super – and I mean everything, but that's the one I really want to see. Yeah. It's going to be great. It's so going to be great. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for your favorite part of the show. It is our rants and rave section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel like we know what we feel like and we're going to say it out loud or that which makes us feel like cowering down in the middle of our cube with a red stapler and sort of <laughs> cutting out the world. Um, and let's see, I'm going first because I have this old marketing uh, this week. I know that's shocking um, for most of you. <laughs> Um, but I have a cool this old marketing, so so I'm really excited about it. Um, so let me just do. I have a two quick raves. Um, is 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 what uh, you know? One is not one is just an article that you have to go read because it's just great. The other is a class that you have to go take. Um, I, the link that we'll put in the show notes is to an article in Engadget, but of course the course is over at the Khan Academy, which is kind of weird that I'm actually recommending the Khan Academy, but that's a competitor, but that's the way we roll here at PNR. Um, the Khan Academy has a new course, um, from Pixar on storytelling and it has just been released and I'm about halfway through it and it's just delightful. It's just a, oh, it's just so good. Um, I could not recommend this course any higher, um, and it's just great. So it's Khan Academy. You can take the course there. It's from Pixar. It's 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 you know it goes through a whole thing of character development and coming up with your own point of view and this wonderful, um, just basically an entire course on um, on storytelling, and it's just fantastic. So um, like I said, I'm about halfway through it. Um, and it's free, by the way. This doesn't cost money. It's free. Um, and so it's just really great. So go take the course, if, especially if you're into storytelling. It's just a, a delightful way to spend a few hours to, to go learn. So, so there's that. The second um, article that I want to just comment on, and this is the one that you just have to go read, um, and this really gets to everything we were just talking about, Joe, in the, in the show. It comes, you know, maybe ironically, it comes from the New York Times. Um, but the headline is, Don't Look Now, But the Great Unbundling Has Spun Into Reverse. And so the art, what the article talks about is this idea of, um, you know, for the last, call it, 10 years, decade, really, we have been in this unbundling sort of madness, right, where we have so many different subscriptions as consumers, right? We have so many different subscriptions that we're signing up for. We're signing up for this over here and signing up for that over there and this channel over here and this service over here and that service over there. And we, you know, there was this great unbundling of services. We talked about it in the TV business with cable TV really unbundling and starting to offer channels and HBO to go and CBS online and, you know, all these different sort of cable networks that were starting to unbundle from the packages that you had to buy from a TV service. And then you had the Netflix of the world and, and Hulu and Sling TV and, and Amazon Prime and all that stuff. 
But now what we're starting to see is the pendulum swing back the other way. And these media companies are starting to bundle stuff up again into packages where, you know, the literally you want fries with that sort of idea where we're starting to see services get bundled into other. uh, And we talked about this just a second ago when we started to see things like, uh, you know, New York Times and and Wirecutter begin to bundle together under one company and you can start to maybe get some savings there. And we're going to start to see some other types of, you know, sort of direct to audience bundles and Amazon Prime is already starting to do this with bundling services together with both, you know, obviously shipping as well as your access to books as, you know, those kinds of things. We're going to see, I'm sure, Netflix do some similar things where other kinds of services get bundled in with your Netflix subscription with other things like Google and Facebook and Apple. All of them are starting to bundle in services um, and other kinds of content into the services that you buy there, whether you get storage services from Apple as well as your iTunes membership. All those kinds of things are starting to really become a more bundled set of vertically integrated packages of products and services. And many, many of them, much of them, will be content-based. Now, what does that have to do with marketing at all? One of the things I've been talking more and more about, and of course, as I get more and more excited about the book that Joe and I are writing, are This idea that the content services that we provide go beyond the product and services that we offer in the marketplace. And so whether you're salesforce.com and you actually offer subscription to, you know, Salesforce automation and marketing cloud software, but you also offer entertainment and enlightenment and education services through Dreamforce and other types of educational programs. We talked about it a couple of episodes ago where we saw Tony Shea and Zappos starting to offer education and training services um, as a content platform in addition to what they're doing. The whole idea of starting to bundle services together, much of which will go outside the products or services that we offer, and much of which will be content-based, will become an increasingly big part of our marketing strategy. And if we don't look at that as marketers, we are missing the boat when it comes to sort of where our future lies in terms of our development of what we're doing from a vertically integrated platform and in a relationship that we can have with the consumers that we want to have that with. So I think this is just a really good article to sort of give a primer to this idea and the beginnings of a business case. If you're starting to think about going to your management with this to say, we need to start thinking about this. How do we bundle content, media, experience-driven services into what it is we do? Because that is the future of our business. That's why content is a business strategy and not just a marketing strategy. So that's my, that's my rant or commentary, if you will. Amen. I feel like I'm in a chapel. I go. like it. I there like it. Go. There we go. There we go. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if we – have we ever had an episode where we've done all raves? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I've got a couple. Not. I've got a couple. These okay. are really, really right quick. Um, and just my thoughts from from the content that I've engaged in this week. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Pixar example and Khan Academy being a competitor. Uh, in the interviews that I've been reading that our wonderful Claire McDermott has been working with us on, on regarding the book, uh, the, and I don't know if you caught this, but the more and more I read through, whether it's Arrow or Terminus or the other ones, when they're building these media platforms, they are all accepting competitor dollars for sponsorship. That's right. And I and I'm just like, wow, it is amazing because you know, I mean, how many uh, conversations have you and I had in when we've gone into these enter- large enterprises and they say, oh, we're not going to talk about the competitor at all, and we're not going to these these companies are accepting 
actively soliciting advertising and sponsorship from competitors. And they're doing so because they believe that if those competitors want to help them build their own content media platforms, then so be it. <laughs> yeah, they have exactly. no problem with that. Uh, rising tide lifts all boats, whatever you want to think about. But they're, they're, this is a thing. This is, I think this is an ongoing trend. So it's something that I noticed that we talk about in the book, book a bit, but I thought was super interesting. And I think we're going to see more of that happen. Um, the second real quick rave that I want to talk about, by the way, I have to mention – a couple of the people on our wonderful uh, team members as part of Content Marketing Institute have told me that I have to stop talking about Tim Ferriss because I talk <laughs> about Tim Ferriss <laughs> too much. So, okay, so really? just so everyone knows, this is the last time I'm going to mention anything related to Tim Ferriss for a while because I listen to his Man podcast. Crush. Yeah, Man I, I, crush. I, I like his podcast. He does a great job. Yeah. So anyways, this week I, I went for a run a couple days ago in beautiful, you know, 70 degree Cleveland weather. Okay. Um, and I was listening to Tim Ferriss podcast featuring um, Soman Chanani. Do you know, are you familiar with Soman? Soman is, I am not. Okay. I am not. Soman is best known for his children's book trilogy called The School for Good and Evil. I'd never heard of it before, but apparently The School for Good and Evil is coming out as a major motion picture in 2018. Oh, cool. uh, the book has sold more than 1.5 million copies and has been translated into 25 languages. So this is like a big deal type of thing. And uh, in talking about the launch of the book and the podcast, Salman says, and I, I wrote this down because it was interesting, said that my biggest goal when I wrote The School for Good and Evil the way to make it a success was not to have the most readers straight off the bat, but to have the most passionate ones. And to this day, I spend one hour a day doing just fan engagement. Wow. And what was interesting is he talks about his core fans becoming his marketing and said if he just focused on his core fans and had an idea of who those people were, that the marketing would take care of itself and they would spread and it's obviously worked pretty well because he sold more than one billion or one million books, and uh, he's got a book deal, and it and it's worked awfully well for him. And I just I love that aspect of it because when when I go into I know you deal with this too, but when I go into um, any size company, they always want to reach a larger audience, no matter who they're trying to reach. They want more. They yeah, want more of, of that audience. And here is a um, an author, a writer. That said, look, if I just focus on a core group of people, um, I think it's isn't it Kevin Kelly also wrote one thousand fans. Yeah, one thousand fans. Yeah, one thousand exactly. fans. Same thing. It's the same idea. Where if you just focus on those, everything else will take care of itself. And I think it's just a good reminder for us to have. If we just focus on our core audience, we'll get the we'll get the audiences outside of that. But we've got to focus on our our core fans first. So yeah, absolutely love that. Love yeah. both of those. So, but anyways, so, so no more Tim Ferriss for, yeah. okay. for a while. All right. Hashtag man. <laughs> the, the gauntlet has right. been laid down. There so you go. There you go. Um, All right. I'm excited okay. to hear about this. Uh, this yeah. One so this is a really cool one. So I found this one. So I went, I've been diving deep into the, um, the, the Robert Rose <laughs> the research bottles. machine here um, to research the book. Um, and I went back to one of my favorite things, which is, so those of you who have listened to this show for any length of time, um, know that at one point we highlighted this guy, Art Shaw. And in fact, I did a whole presentation on Art Shaw, um, at Content Marketing World a couple of years ago. So Art Shaw <clears throat> was a 
entrepreneur and a businessman, and he had, <clears throat> excuse me ended up being the um, first editor of the Harvard Business Review, and also the originator and publisher of a magazine called the uh, System, the Magazine of Business. And of course, System, the Magazine of Business, um, went on to become a highly you know it was a, it was a content marketing platform that Art Shaw launched for his uh, office supply business, and basically talked about all the best practices that were going on in business and trained business people how to be better business people. And so his theory there was train people to be better business people, and thus they'll need office supplies. And it worked, and he grew his business using it. And it was a great example of this marketing and we talked about it on this show we actually used it as an example and i went deeper into that and, and told the whole art shaw story in uh, in one of my presentations so in an issue of system the magazine of business because that's the geek i am i actually go through and read all these magazines um, from 1920 i'm going to pull an article and this article um, is uh, the headline of the article is 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 meeting customers I never see, and it's written by a guy by the name of John Yoakum Beatty, who I'm really struggling to find any more information on, other than the fact that he also ended up authoring a book on farming um, at some point. Um, but I'm really tr- struggling to find his business. But so I'm assuming it wasn't a very big business. I know it was in Illinois um, and someplace outside of Chicago. And it was the pork makers herd of Berkshires. So I'm assuming he sold pigs, hogs. And so I'm going to assume for the moment that he it's a mid-sized business, that he sells hogs. He's the president of the company um, and lives in, you know, and because he sells all over the country. So I just want to I want to read some of this article to you, Joe, because I just think it's bad. Remember, this is 1920, and he's writing a case study of his own experience, right? So this is his basically what the biggest impact has been on his selling of and improving the sales within his business. And the headline is, Meeting Customers I Never See. And the article opens up by saying, <clears throat> and I'm quoting now, My customers live in 30 states. Uh, and the number is constantly increasing. It is apparent that if I could get them together in one big meeting, I could learn a lot about what they wish to buy and how they wish to buy it. It would be too expensive to have them come physically to my place of business to tell me what they want. Very few of them come to see me when they're ready to buy anyway. But frequently, I can hold meetings with them, learn just what they wish to buy and how they wish to buy it without any expense, either to me or to them. It's quite obvious that I, these meetings are made possible by the use I can make of the magazine and the mail that I send it through. He then goes on to talk about his magazine that he created. This magazine that he created that offers wonderful articles and best and questions and then answers to questions. So in the true sense of Marcus Sheridan, basically answering every question that your customer might have. And basically creating this wonderful magazine and he sends it out to his customers. And, and, and then he gets incredible insight in, from his customers about what they want to buy and what they want to hear. He goes on in the middle of the article. He says, this is, and this is my favorite, one of my favorite bits. He says, at the end of the year, I publish a special edition complete with a list of purchasers, all the customers, their addresses, their phone numbers, and what they bought. I make a summary of this list to show how well my business is covering the country. In other words, he basically lets all the con- the customers, now this obviously wouldn't fly today maybe, but with privacy and yeah. everything, but he basically made an entire list of his customer base and said, go talk to each other. Here's how much this guy spent. Here's how much this guy spent. Here's how much this guy bought from me. Then he says, um, I plan on my next issue of having a chapter which is part of a complete course in hog raising. 
The feature has proved to be very important when I've written on it in the past, not only in helping in making sales, but in keeping customers satisfied by making them more successful with their purchase, basically teaching them how to raise hogs in his magazine so that they're more successful when they buy from him. He says, I want to see this in all industries. For example, if manufacturing a farm machine would give me a course in using that machine, it would show me how to use it and repair it and how to operate it, I would be much more inclined to purchase that, uh, that farm machine from them. Very few merchants give assistance of this sort unless they urgently requested to do so. Then here's the punchline. Toward the end of the article... He starts talking about this, you know, his magazine and how he's beginning to, and, and you start to go, well, he said he didn't, he didn't actually cost him any money. Here's the, here's the punchline. He okay. says, I've often wondered how universal this question is and how I might actually expand this. He says, so for example, I get questions all of the time into how other things could get purchased, farm machines, other types of seeds, other types of useful things uh, for the farm. He said, so one of the things that I have to do is I'll make advertisements for my customers that let them advertise what they're looking to buy or what they may be looking to sell on their own farm. These classified advertisements I charge not for. In other words, I don't charge any money for my customers, my subscribers, to put ads in my paper, my magazine, to actually advertise their stuff. He said, but, he said, I have started to take advertising money from companies who wish to sell these things to other people. He said, so I'm starting to build my business on advertising and an advertising revenue model where I put advertising from other manufacturers that do not compete with me in my magazine so that they can actually, uh, my customers can actually see that there are other places to buy these farm equipment and other things that I don't sell that they might need. Then he closes the article by saying, I've read other means and methods of selling. I have talked with other successful salesmen, but I find I can learn much more about selling to my customers by holding meetings with my customers themselves than I can learn in any other way. The only thing I've had to do has been to provide some means of holding these meetings. My magazine has been the principal medium to hold these meetings, and I have had to encourage my customers to attend the meetings. This encouragement is derived from the homely style, personal interest, and the value that the readers find in my magazine. I just absolutely love what, that example. What year is this again? 1920. Oh my gosh. That's fantastic. So here's a guy who created a magazine, figured out how to monetize it, built an audience, started selling advertising to non-competitors, made money out of it, and actually used that to fuel the ability for him to communicate and learn what his customers wanted to buy. Just, I mean, just like, hello, it's the Content Inc. model, the 1920. It's like, I, pick, I want to picture this guy Honest, uh, you know, sitting with a bunch of pigs, and it's basically your doppelganger from like, you know, Time Machine, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's hey, that's Joe Polizzi. That's so funny. <laughs> so that's anyway, you're an amazing example, example of this old that marketing, is amazing. And one that's going in the book. Oh, fantastic! I, it it has to go in the book. It's yeah. perfect. So what uh, what are you off to? Uh, are you traveling? Uh, I this fly week? tomorrow. Yeah, I fly tomorrow, and I'm going to Boston to visit with a client to talk to them and do some road mapping exercises for their content marketing uh, strategy for 2017. And then I am off to New York to keynote um, the C3 Conductor C3 conference. Oh, so that's really, right. Yeah, so I love I'm excited that about that. Yeah, they're doing it at a Broadway theater, so I'm really super excited about the stage and and getting to do it on a stage like that. So oh, that should be a fun a- week um, on the road, but. On airplanes and in hotels, I'll be writing, 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 writing. Work, 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 work. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually. My travel season is starting now, so I'll be. I'll be in Raleigh this week for. I'm keynoting the High Five Conference. Oh, I was just in Raleigh. 
Yeah, Raleigh's a great city, so I love the triangle. Yeah. So I'll be there uh, doing uh, doing my little uh, uh, content marketing keynote, and uh, and from and now it's now it has begun because yes. now now for the rest I think until late May or early June I'm pretty much doing something every week. So okay, uh, yeah, me too. It's that time of year. It is that time of year. It, it absolutely is. All right. Well. That is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose. We are signing off. And if you like this episode, number 172, won't you leave us a kind review on iTunes? We need them reviews. We want those reviews. That keeps us popular and that gets us up into the rankings. And we like all that stuff because it helps us do all these wonderful shows for you. And if you haven't yet, do consider subscribing on that same iTunes or Stitcher.com. And if you leave us a review or if you subscribe, do the wonderful thing and hashtag us up on Twitter. We'd love to thank you personally for that. And of course, story ideas, story ideas, story ideas. Tweet us up, hashtag us up at This Old Marketing. Those are great. We have a little bookmark. It's all saved. We use those hashtags and those story ideas to populate this little show. Or if you've got a question or you just don't want to post it on the Twitter, you can also send an email at thisoldmarketing.com. Contentinstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will, of course, of course, be available in the show notes, available in the show as we publish on Monday night, and of course, of course, on the show post as we publish at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, remember, folks, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.